Welcome to the Grove Church. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here. Um, we are so excited for you guys to join us. This is our second Sunday as the Grove. Um, yeah, one whistle, awesome. Um, we are so, so excited you guys are here uh, to join us. We are getting started as we exist to be able to make disciples who know, treasure, and obey Christ. We want to be people that don't just uh, know about God, we want to know Him. Uh, we don't just want to know him. We see that then how we know him should affect our hearts, that our hearts and our affections should be stirred. And not only that, not just our minds and our hearts, but then also our hands should be affected as we then move forward in obedience to Jesus, to see that the way that God has designed us, our ultimate joy is found in him. And so as we do that, one of the things that marks us here at the Grove is we are expository preachers. So what that means is that the majority of time, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, we think the, the Bible is the best way to hear about Jesus, and Jesus is the best way for us to see who God is. Uh, he is the imprint and the image of the living God. And so we want to each week just kind of hold a microphone up to God and let him speak. So we are right in the middle of our study through 1 Samuel. Um, so you can go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, you can grab one of the Bibles there on the seats next to you um, and use that. And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, so we are walking through 1 Samuel. Now, as Andrew said, there are a number of uh, treats and goodies on the Connect table, including bumper stickers. They also go on the windows uh, of your car. So if you don't, not into bumper stickers, they also go on windows, so window stickers, whatever you'd like for them to be. They can go on your Yeti cups, or if you're like me, uh, your Ozark Trail cups, because we don't have enough money to shop for the Yeti, so we go to Walmart <laughs> and get the Ozark Trail. Uh, but it's just as good. There's YouTube videos out there, you can see. Anyway, um, but anyway, so you can can use it a number of ways. There's pens, but there's also a few uh, information cards out there. So we have ways to be able to get connected, information about small groups or serving our membership here, uh, ways to be able to pray for you. There's prayer cards out there. Uh, if you don't want to come back and respond at the end of service to be able to pray, you can go out there, write your prayer request down, um, and we will be praying through that uh, as a church. There's also uh, this week little bookmarks that have our sermon series on there. So on the front, it'll have the sermon series, something new, study through 1 Samuel. And on the back, it'll have the dates and what passages we'll be preaching through. So that way, again, you can be reading through the passage leading up to the Sunday to be able to prepare your heart um, and best uh, be able to respond to his word. So that's out there. There's a few other things that are just great. So anyway, the connect table, it's awesome. You'll see it right when you walk out. Uh, you can go and check it out there. Um, also, last week we mentioned Right Now Media. Um, it's a resource that we've partnered with as a church to be able to give everyone here, all the members and those who also come here uh, to the church. Uh, so it's a great, great resource. Again, the best way to describe it, it's the Netflix of Christianity. Um, so now as a Christian church, we can come together uh, and watch instead of SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, all these great resources that are out there. They've got tons of stuff for kids, uh, marriage, counseling, um, great conferences, awesome Bible studies that are 13, 20 minutes long uh, by some of the best teachers in in the country today. Uh, J.D. Greer, David Platt, Matt Chandler, uh, some awesome, awesome content. So anyway, we've partnered with that so you guys don't have to pay for that. We want to be able to give that to you as a gift. We think it's a great way to help become a disciple uh, who knows treasures and obeys Christ. So if you didn't get an email last Sunday, you may want to check your spam file A because uh, some people it showed up in their spam. And then secondly, it may just be because we don't have your email. Uh, and so again, if you would like access to that, you can just fill out one of those welcome cards and turn it in at the end of the service, and we'll send you an email this week with the link to be able to register for it. So that's Right Now Media. So into our text then this morning in 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now this is 
one of, if not the most well-known Bible story um, in the world. This is one of those stories that's transcended the book and it's just gone into uh, culture. So you hear about it uh, every time March rolls around and college basketball tournaments around and number 16 is playing the number one seed and you hear the story of David and Goliath. It's the little guy versus the big guy. Who's going to win? Uh, and it's here this morning that we'll be looking at that passage. But before we get into it, we need to make sure we've set the scene and the context for what's happened leading up to it. Because if not, we'll miss the point of what the author is trying to tell us. And we will instead kind of read the story as we would like and kind of impose ourselves into the passage when I don't think we're supposed to do that. And so 1 Samuel has been building throughout, and we've had a number of different lead characters. It began with this guy named Samuel, who God raised up as a prophet who was following the Lord and speaking and beginning to try to redirect Israel back to covenant faithfulness with God. Well, we see then that Israel begins to demand for a king, and so Samuel goes and prepares the way for the very first king of Israel, who is our next lead character, Saul. And Saul takes the stage for a number of chapters. And we have high hopes for Saul at the beginning. He's leading Israel. The Spirit of God has rushed upon Saul. He's defeating enemies. But then we began to see some red flags pop up a few chapters ago. And then full out just uh, falling apart uh, uh, just two chapters ago. As Saul disobeyed God and Samuel came and said, The Lord has rejected you as king. There's someone else that God has. And we saw last week this new character this new person that God has chosen to be the king of Israel. And this kid named David is anointed as king. As Samuel goes and he finds this unsuspecting family that has eight sons, Jesse, this older man who has eight sons, he tells them, hey, bring out your sons. I'm going to anoint one of them as king. And so Jesse brings out the sons that he thinks could be king, and he brings out seven of his eight sons. And Saul, uh, Samuel walks through each of them, and God says, nope, that's not the one. Next one comes, nope, that's not the one. Next one comes, that's not the one. And gets to the end, and still the king hasn't been chosen. So Samuel goes, hey, Jesse, are you sure this is all of your sons? And he goes, well, there's, I mean, there's the youngest one out in the field, David. He's a shepherd, though, and he's a kid. There's no way that's who you're talking about. Samuel's like, well, just go get him just in case. We won't eat till he gets here. Let's see what happens. And brings him, and sure enough, God said, this is my chosen man. It's him that I choose. Everyone else looks on the outside, but I look at the heart. I look at something different. We saw that in verse 7 last week of chapter 16. As the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. For humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And again, that's if you're an underliner, underline that verse. Circle that verse. Box that verse. Whatever shape you want to put on there. Put around that verse. Because that helps us see how God sees the world. And it's through that verse that's going to help us understand this passage today. So keep that in the back of your mind. As God says, humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And that then leads us to chapter 17, as we then see David come and face the great enemy of Jerusalem and Israel, Goliath. So in chapter 17... Verses 1 through 58. So this is three pages if you got one of the Bibles in the pew. we got a three-page sermon today. Um, so I'm, this is the first time here at the Grove, or maybe in any church ever. I don't know. Um, but we are so excited. So it's one of, this is one of, again, try to listen as we read through. Listen to the details of the story. It's such a well-told story. There's a lot of nuances throughout. Um, and we believe, again, this is the Word of God. And so what we're about to do is the most important thing we do in the service today as we read the Word of God out loud. 
There were centuries where people would have killed to be able to hear the word because it was kept from them in their language and they only heard it preached in Latin. So what we're about to do, some people may go, oh my gosh, 58 verses, that's so long. It's important for us to understand what this book is and what so many people would have done to be able to experience what we're about to as we hear the living God speak through his living word to his people. So let's read now chapter 17, verses 1 through 58. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Socah in Judah, and camped between Socah and Azekah, in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, then lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now David was the son of Ephrathite, from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war, and their names were Eliab the firstborn, Abinadab the next, and Shammah the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse told his son David, Take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. And take these ten portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation, facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with him, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, Do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. And David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine? And removes this disgrace from Israel. 
Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding that is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother Eliab listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with David. Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down just to see the battle. What have I done now, protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. And the people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down, and I rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put on a bronze helmet on David's head and had his armor put on him. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with a shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from the sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. 
The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn along the Shiram road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, Whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as you live, I don't know, Abner replied. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. And so we have here a beautiful story of God's faithfulness, God's uh, jealousy for the glory of his name, and just how strong our God is. And so as we see, remember, this whole chapter is really kind of an outplaying of that verse from chapter seven, uh, 16, verse 7. As we see, the Lord doesn't look on the outside, he looks at what's inside. And we see this living representation of that as we have this literal giant of a man come up against this young little shepherd boy. And we see how it is God chooses to work. So as we move through this quickly, we're going to go through a number of chunks as we stroll through. Um, and we're going to kind of hone in at the end of one thing in particular. So the different sections we'll be moving through, we see first the introductions in verses 1 through 27, kind of setting the stage for the context. Second, we'll see the doubt of man in verses 28 through 33. Then we'll see the confidence of David in verses 34 through 40. Then the trash talk, my favorite point. I've never, never thought, when I was going through seminary, I never thought I could have a point that could just be called the trash talk. But I'm the preacher, so I can make the points whatever I want to be. So the trash talk is point number four in verses 41 through 47. And finally, we'll see the victory in verses 48 through 58. So first, in the introductions verses 1 through 27. We have two real introductions here, a lot of time given to Goliath, 11 verses, and then a good chunk given to David as well um, in 12 through 27. Um, I'm just making sure my phone doesn't keep going to sleep so I can see how long I'm preaching because we're going through 58 verses and I want to make sure that we don't go too long because I have a tendency sometimes when I don't have a stopwatch to go really long. We've got 58 verses and 58 great verses. Trust me, it's best for you if I keep this going. So, with that being said, we look at then the introductions to Goliath and David. The author spends a lot of time giving specific details about Goliath, and I love that. So some of your Bibles may say things like cubits or spans. Um, the, the CSB go ahead and translates that to what it's like today, uh, because I don't know many people today. It's like, oh, how tall are you? I'm 3.25 cubits tall. Nobody talks like that anymore. Maybe if you're from Europe, I'm not sure what they do. Who knows? But they don't do feet and inches. Uh, and so we see how tall Goliath is. Goliath walks out, and he is nine feet, nine inches tall. So he's a big boy. Not only that, but his armor, the armor that he wore, weighed 125 pounds. Not only that, but the head of his spear, not his spear as a whole, just the, the tip of it there, the iron, weighed 15 pounds. So I don't know if you've tried to pick up a 15-pound kettlebell or a 15-pound weight. It's kind of difficult to pick up. Uh, it's much more difficult to put that on the end of a spear and throw it. So the point being made here in these first 11 verses is the author's trying to say this champion from Gath was huge. And he was much stronger than anybody that the Israelites could bring out. He was 
tall, he was strong, he was a champion, and he walks out and he's taunting Israel. Bring forward somebody to face me, Goliath. And this was common in um, ancient warfare that two armies would show up and they would send their best warrior out and they would fight individually. And whoever won, then that, the whole side would win from their victory. So if you've seen the movie Troy, this happens with Achilles at the very beginning as two champions are brought out. And so this is what happens here. Goliath is saying, bring your best. And if you win and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I win, then you have to serve us. And he's taunting them. It says specifically he's defying the living God of Israel. And so he comes out for 40 days and 40 nights and keeps doing this. And you see Israel's reaction to it in verse 11. Look down at verse 11. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words, they lost their courage and were terrified. So this is the very beginning. There's this huge giant and Israel is trembling over in the corner going, we can't do this. Then we get this new character in verse 12, now David. And we remember, if we're reading through Samuel, we remember uh, this is the anointed king. What in the world is God about to do with this little teenage shepherd boy that his own father didn't believe in him? And if you're reading this for the first time, you can't help but wonder, there is no way that David is going to be the one to come forward and fight this giant. Surely not. This is just an ordinary shepherd boy even though he had been anointed king one chapter before. And do you see the way in which he gets to the battle? He gets to the battle by his father telling him, hey, bring this cheese and bread over to your brothers. See how they're doing. Come back and bring me word. Just doing a very ordinary task. He's following his father's instructions. He gets there. He gives him the cheese. He gives him some bread. And that's whenever he hears the Philistine. And so it's important, I think, for us to see that what brought David to this place and what gave us one of the great stories in the Bible was him just doing very ordinary stuff. He's just taking bread and cheese to his brothers. But friends, listen to me. That's the way that God often works in our life. He often doesn't work through the spectacular. He often works through the very ordinary. And he's called us to be faithful in all of those little things, in all of the ordinary things of life. And we never know just what he might do through them. And so it's just like we would have never guessed that by bringing bread and cheese, God would use a shepherd to strike down the enemy of Israel. But that's exactly what he does. And David gets there, and he goes up to his brothers. He sees the battle lines. And then in verse 23, Goliath comes forward. He shouts his usual words. And then this phrase is what dooms the Philistines. He shouts his usual words, which David heard. Because when David heard that, he said, hold on, that's not just an offense against these people and my brothers. That's an offense against our God. And we see in verse 26, David's response to it. He's sitting there looking around like, guys, are you serious? Is no one else thinking what I'm thinking? And the very first words up to this point in verse 26, David has not spoken a word in the Bible. One of the great heroes of the Bible, we get here his first words, and they are so important. As he looks around and he says to the people who are standing with him, hey, what will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? These are the very first words from David. And in essence, he shows up and he's like, 
God, hey, guys, seriously, this, this giant, yeah, I see, nine feet. Yeah, I see that. But do you not hear what he's saying? Does having a living God not make any difference in this situation? David's saying, God, are you, are, why are we shaking? Do we realize who he's coming against? This is the living and sovereign God who's now gotten us together as his covenant people, and he will fight for us. What are we doing? Why are we just standing back terrified? And David comes to bring a different perspective. The Israelite army was focused on their problem. And David walks in and he was focused on his God. One brought boldness and hope. The other brought a lack of courage and terror. Friends, up until verse 26, this story really was godless. The Israelites were not running to God for help. They were not remembering his faithfulness or his promises. They just looked at their problem and they were scared to death. And I cannot help but think all this week as I was preparing for this thinking in my own life and thinking about us as a church, I cannot help but think for us when we face problems in our life, when we face big decisions in our life, whenever we face tragedies or the pressures of this world, that our response feels a lot like verses 1 through 26. It's, it's often godless. As we think through and we allow the anxiety and the circumstances of our life to press in around us. And my hope is that one of the things we can do as a community is we can walk alongside one another. And that in those moments, whenever things begin to weigh down and we see that our eyes are beginning to drop and look at our problems, that we can be people just like David and come and say, hey, does having a living God make any difference in this circumstance? That yes, this is a, 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 gr- a huge problem, whether great or small. There may be actual tragedy and severe loss. Friends, one of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't try to just explain it all away and go, hey, just slap a smile on your face. It's okay because Jesus loves you. The Bible is incredibly honest, saying that we will go through really difficult times, One pastor has said before, if you haven't experienced suffering yet, it's just because you haven't lived long enough. It's coming for all of us because this world is broken. But what the Bible does is it doesn't just say slap a bumper sticker, get a nice little coffee mug with a cool little uh, quote from Romans 8.28 and just put a smile on your face. It says, no, you will feel the pain of sin that has infected this creation. But because of Jesus Christ, there is coming a day whenever all of that will end. Friend, all the sin and pain in your life has an expiration date on it, if you are in Christ. And so we walk through that knowing that we are sorrowful, and yet the New Testament says we can be always rejoicing, that we hold those two together, the complexity of the human experience, that we feel the pain of this world, but we also hold out the hope of the gospel and the joy that we have through Jesus Christ. And so as we walk through, we feel the pain and the difficult circumstances of our lives, but we remind ourselves that having a living God makes a difference in this situation. And that's what David comes, and he brings a different perspective. He tries to lift up their eyes. And what we have to get our minds around is this, is that our life is not about us. Our life is about the glory of the Father, the glory of God. That's what David comes in. He says, guys, what are you scared about? We're a good army. We got this. No, it's not what he says. He doesn't come in and say, hey, listen, I got a stone. I'm a really good sling. You wouldn't believe. You should see some of the bears I've taken out. I can handle them. I'll sneak in. He won't expect it. I'll get them right in the head. 
I'm a good shot. No, it isn't what he said. David comes in and he says, this man has defied the name of the living God. David's hope in victory rests not in his own skill, but it rests in the fact that God is jealous for the glory of his name. And here's a man who's defying that. And he walks forward in confidence. Now, as he makes that decision and walks forward, there are people that doubt him. And we see the doubt of man then in verses 28 through 33. There's two in particular, Eliab, his older brother, and Saul. Eliab first because, well, because David's his younger brother. And so I don't know if you have an older brother, but they ain't ever going to believe in you. It doesn't matter how big or strong you might be, if you go and do anything, any kind of competition, you're going to always be the younger brother. You could be the president of the United States one day. And you could go and you could play whatever it is you play, basketball, goldfish, and by the end of it, you're going to end up with your head between his arms getting a noogie. It doesn't matter. You will always be the younger brother. And that's exactly what we see here. Because remember, the chapter before, David was anointed king. God said, that's my man. And Eliab, his brother, was there. But when David comes and he says this, look at Eliab's response in verse 28. David's older brother listened as he spoke to the men and he became angry with him, right? This is a classic older brother. Gets frustrated. He's like, seriously, David, you, you come and you bring cheese and you're like, oh, God will fight for us. Listen, we've been here for 40 days and we've seen how big this guy is. We can see the trail of carcasses behind him that he is defeated. Don't come in here acting like, oh, uh, we're going to be okay because God's on our side. None of that, David. That's ridiculous. And he tells him, why did you come down here? Verse 28. And I love this. Listen to this question. This is just classic, classic older brother. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness again? Now, he didn't just say, he wasn't actually concerned. He wasn't like, oh, are the sheep okay? Did you get someone to, to care for them? No, he, he even adds in that word few. He's like, hey, those few sheep that you got, those two or three, you know, the little sheep, the, the small little ones that you can barely take care of. Hey, who's, who's guarding that again while, you're, while we're out here fighting the Philistines? Could you tell me that again? Are you, are you, you, you got it covered? Oh, okay, cool. Because I know what's really in your heart. You just wanted to come down here and see the battle because you're a punk little kid. That this, is, this is just, again, classic older brother in 28. And then David's response in 29 is classic younger brother. He's like, oh, what have I done now, Eliab? <laughs> it was just a question. And we see this response as Eliab, again, is looking on the outside going, there's no way. There's no way. You don't understand. And then he comes to Saul, and he gets, he, he's the only one with any kind of confidence. They're like, okay, we need to put someone out there. So let's go bring this guy, David, before Saul and see what Saul thinks. And Saul doubts him as well. As Saul looks at him and he says, uh, you can't fight this Philistine in verse 33. You're just a youth. And this guy, he's been a warrior since he was young. Not a chance. So Eliab looks at him because he's his younger brother and doubts him. Saul looks at him and doubts him because he lacks experience and he's young. But both of them look on the outside and say, there's no way that this can work. And so David's response, which really the, the whole passage is pointing forward to David's response here in verses 34 through 40, shows where his confidence lies. And the confidence of David lies both in his experience, but then especially in the interpretation of his experience. So in response to Saul, um, as Saul tells him he's too young and inexperienced, David tells him in verse 34, hey, Saul, you don't understand, man. I'm a shepherd. Uh, there, the, you don't quite understand what that job description entails, honestly, because whenever a sheep gets taken, I go after it. And the things taking them are bears and lions. And if they take them, I grab them by the fur, I slit their throat, and I take them down because I'm a shepherd. 
I'm a shepherd man. <laughs> Saul's like, oh, 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 okay, all right, well, I guess you've got a good resume. And he goes through and he lists it all. And we have to be careful because if we just read verses 30 through through 46, uh, 34 through 36, is David saying, here's my resume. This Philistine will be just like uh, one of the lions and the bears. We have to make sure we see the very end of 36. Because if we're not, then David will just say, we'll go, oh, well, David was experienced. He was good with a sling. He's killed some bears, so he must be able to handle a giant. But David said the reason why this Philistine will die is because he has defied the armies of the living God. So David's confidence was not in his experience, though that was there. So we also need to make sure we don't paint David as like this bumbling little idiot that walked out like, I don't know, oh, here's some stones and a sling. Let's see what happens. David was a man. He killed some lions and bears. Listen, if there are any men or women in here that have killed lions and bears, please come grab me afterwards and let me buy you lunch so that you don't ever turn on me. <laughs> because those are bad people to be able to take out lions and bears with your bare hands. But David said, that's not where my confidence is. The reason why he has died is because he has defied the armies of the living God. And then verse 37, he interprets his experience. And it's here, it's the foundation of his confidence and his boldness. He said, the Lord has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. So you see how David doesn't land on his own ability or his skill. David says, the reason why I killed each one of those animals is because the Lord rescued me. He was the one working. It was not me. So yes, I've got experience, Saul. I don't think I'm just some kid that's never done anything like this before. But you also need to understand that my strength comes not in my own abilities, but by the Spirit of God that has now empowered me. And this hand of the Philistine will also fall because the Lord will rescue me. The foundation of David's confidence, the interpretation of his experience is that the confidence that I have is not in my ability or skill with a sling, but it's in the power and the might and the strength of a holy God that is jealous for his name. And here's a little nine foot nine giant that's trying to poke some fun at him. And I can walk out knowing that God will handle it. Because God looks not on the outside, but he looks at what's within. And it's there that we see the confidence of David. David looks at the past of God's faithfulness. The Lord rescued me from lions. The Lord rescued me from bears. And then he uses logic and reason to apply that to God's future faithfulness. If he has done this in the past, then he will do this today. Friends, it's so important for us to remember that we have bad memories. You read the Old Testament, you hear this one phrase over and over again. God's telling the people of Israel, remember lest you forget. Remember lest you forget. And he told them that because they were prone to forget. And friends, we are no different. We are so quick to forget God's faithfulness in our past. And so if that is you, just like me, one of the best things you can do is just invest in a journal write it down. Write about the ways that God has been faithful in your life so that you can go back to that. And whenever new pressures come up, you can look back and go, God was faithful then. He was faithful then. He will be faithful today because he was and is and is to come. He is never changing. And even when I am faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so David is looking back to remember and inform his present. And we need to make sure real quick, I don't have time to talk about this, but I have to. Um, 
we need to pause real quick because what in particular American evangelicals are really good at is taking things like that and going, oh, well, here's a hard situation in my life. Or maybe I lost a job, or maybe there's some marital difficulties right now, or uh, maybe there's just this hard situation in my life. Let me look back and see the way that God has done then, and, and today what He will do is He will take this situation away. He will remove this hard circumstance. He will give me a better job, because God has been faithful. Friends, you, you will hear that preached in churches, and you will hear that preached on TV. You will not hear that preached in the Bible. Because God has something much greater in mind for you than just your comfort here on earth. It does not say that he is working all things together for his glory and for your comfort. He's working all things together for his glory and for your good. And we need to be careful and see the way in which the Bible defines that. It's the very next verse, Romans 8.29. We see that our good is being shaped and conformed into the image of his son. And friends, often the way that that happens is through the hard circumstances in our life. It's through tragedy and pain and disappointment that God takes a chisel and begins to break away another part that doesn't quite look like Jesus. Because he doesn't give us ease, he gives us himself. And friends, that is so much better than a good job or a higher bank account our happiness in this world, God says, I will give you me. I will promise you that I will always be there. And if, if you can find your joy and satisfaction and happiness in me, then there is nothing in this world that can touch you. There is a joy that transcends this world. There is a peace that passes understanding. If you come to me, if you look to me, if you don't look at the things around you, because if you do, they will let you down and your world will crumble but if you look to me, I will always be here. And so what we need to make sure we're not saying is that, oh, God's faithful in the past, he'll give me a better job. That's not what he's saying. Friends, he very well might not. Listen, that message sounds great in a Western culture that's affluent and that's fairly uh, sympathetic to Christianity. That message does not work well in North Korea or in the Middle East. That message does not work well throughout church history for any of the church martyrs. That message doesn't work well for any of the disciples. Friends, there are times in which hard times will come in our life, some because of our faith. Jesus looked at us and he did not say, carry your comfort and follow me. Friends, he said, carry your cross. And so we need to understand what this message means. God's past faithfulness is not just giving us what we want, it's giving us what we need, namely himself that in the midst of whatever circumstance comes our way, he will be there. And God's past faithfulness should always inform our present fear. And no matter what's pressing in, we look and we go, God, you are enough. You are here and you will never leave. Our hope and our happiness doesn't rest in a change in circumstance. It rests in a change of perspective. As we lift our eyes from the circumstances and giants closing in, and we lift our eyes to the covenant and faithful God. Fourth, then we see then the trash talk, the point we've all been waiting for. Yeah. The trash talk in 41 through 47, both of Goliath and of David. So Goliath comes out and he's just kind of bringing it to him. Oh, look, who, uh, who is this little man who's comes out? Verse 42, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. And what he's saying is that, oh, look at this cute little guy. Oh, he's so cute. And I hate him. Right, David was like a, a young embodiment of Jonathan Taylor Thomas. 
young, cute, handsome, right? The voice of Simba, the guy on home improvement. That's, that's what the, the text here, when it's talking about ruddy and handsome, it's talking about this young kid. This, oh, he's just so cute. I don't think anyone's seen Jonathan Taylor Thomas past the age of 18. We just always have this image of him as this small kid in home improvement. Uh, if you're a woman born in the 80s, then you unilaterally had a crush on him. Uh, and if you don't know who he is, you can go back and YouTube or Google him later today. If you don't know who Google is, again, you can talk to me afterwards and we'll walk through it. <laughs> but Goliath looks at him and despises him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He's like, what, am I a dog? You come at me with sticks? There's some good trash talk here too. Are you a dog that you come at me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. And David responds then, And David's response is, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I, I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. So again, you hear it with David again. David's confidence doesn't lie in the fact that he's killed bears and lions. David's confidence comes in the fact that he is coming out in the name of the Lord of armies on behalf of the glory of the God of the ranks of Israel, and you have defied him. And we see that in verse 26 as David comes and he tells people, hey, he's defied the army of the living God. Verse 37, he says, the Lord will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And verse 45, I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. David's confidence throughout this whole chapter is rooted in the name and the glory of God. And he tells them that there will be a day you will die and the world will know that Israel has a God. This whole assembly will know it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. And then we get to the victory, verses 48 through 58. I love this detail in 48. The Philistine started forward to attack him. So remember, there's this hill, and at the bottom there's this ravine, and so Goliath begins to move down towards David. And how does David respond? David ran quickly to the battle line. I love that. I love the details in this story. David didn't walk, he didn't trot, he didn't skip. He sprinted because he wanted to get there because he knew what was about to happen. He put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, hit him on the head. Goliath fell. He takes then Goliath's sword, kills him and cuts off his head. And he receives and establishes the victory of Israel over the Philistines. And the, the thing I want to point out here at the very end is that what often gets brought up in this story is all the focus is on the battle. All the focus is on David and Goliath and the sling and the fight and oh, he hit him on the forehead and did it implant in his head? Did it fall? How hard did he throw it? And we focus all on the battle. What are your Goliaths in your life that you're facing? What are the stones that you're going to throw against them? But what we need to understand, one of the things about expository preaching is we look and try to understand the very first question we ask is what does the text say? We don't come to it trying to bring our own thoughts into it. We just begin and we try to expose what it is the Bible says. It's expositing, expository. And so when we come, we actually see that the battle of David and Goliath only gets four verses in this chapter out of 58 The battle isn't the point of the story. It's all before, the anticipation leading up. The battle isn't the main point. It's not, we don't need to come to this passage and go, hey, you're David. What are your Goliaths? What are the problems in your life? The Goliaths in your life that you need to slay? 
Why would we do that? Why would we come and ask that? Why is that perspective preached so often with this story? Friends, I think it's because we either think or we like to hear that the Bible is all about us. Because when we do that, we infuse ourselves into the stories of the Bible. And when we do that, do you know who we choose? We choose the heroes. We choose the good guys. Well, I'm obviously David. Clearly, I mean, ruddy, handsome, beautiful eyes. Duh, that's, that's clear. Well, well, then what would be Goliath? Well, I guess my Goliath would be my problems and the difficulties in life. Difficulties in marriage or financial stress or self-image. Okay, all right, so if that's, if that's true, if that's this story and this is how I'm supposed to take this away, then how am I going to battle these? How am I going to slay my Goliaths? How am I going to bring down the giants of my life? But friends, whenever we try to apply this text like that, we are lessening what the Bible is trying to teach us. If we assign financial stress or marital arguments to Goliath, we are minimizing the enemy that we really face. Because the Goliath, remember at the very beginning, the author's trying to show Goliath was unbeatable on his own. He was insurmountable and unconquerable. He was unbeatable. And you think that having a hard time with your spouse is, uh, is synonymous with that? that we shouldn't lessen the point of their text. Listen, if there's any imagery in this text, it isn't pointing to our hard American difficulties. It's pointing forward to all of humanity's greatest enemy, an enemy that is insurmountable and unbeatable. It's what the Bible calls our last enemy, namely death and sin. And do you know who walks out on the battlefield to fight that enemy? Listen, it ain't you. We're back in the back trembling knowing that we cannot conquer this enemy, the enemy that comes for every person, the enemy that is unconquerable and insurmountable, the person that walks out is a good shepherd from Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, from the lineage of David himself, walks forward, another unsuspecting candidate, a small little carpenter, and the weapon that he chooses, it's only fitting that it's a piece of wood as he takes not a sling, but he takes a cross, and he defeats death and sin by dying. Jesus Christ, God made flesh, dies in your place. And his victory then was won the next day when he rose from the dead, and he trampled death and sin under his heel, and that victory is given to us. So do you know, again, what that makes you and who that makes you in this story? You're not David. You're not the stones. You're the trembling Israelites in the back who's scared to death to fight your enemy because you know that it's unsurmountable and unconquerable. And Jesus walks forward and defeats our enemy for us and his victory is then given to us even though we didn't lift a finger. Friends, that is the hope and the offer of the gospel. And that is the hope and the offer of the Bible as we see the Bible is all about God. It's not about you and how he is working all things together for his glory through the redemption of his fallen creation and, and his people by the death and resurrection of his son. And so you know what that means. It means that this Jesus that we follow isn't dead like all the other prophets of all the other religions. That he died, but he is now alive. 
that this God that we serve and we follow and we worship is alive. We have a hope that is not dead or a fingers crossed. Our hope is living. We have a living hope and his name is Jesus. We serve and follow a living God. And doesn't having a living God make any kind of difference here? Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for being a God who is concerned for the glory of your name and who has chosen to work for the redemption of your people through the sacrifice of your son. God, help us to live and see that our great hope, our great confidence, and our great strength doesn't come in who we are, but in whose we are. That we are sons and daughters of the living God. And you are faithful. And you will continue to be faithful. And there will be a day whenever all of our sin, all of our pain, all of our enemies will be behind us and we will feast together with you and we will say that you have done all things for your glory and for our good. And we love you and we thank you so much for that living hope. We pray this in Christ's name.